Now I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, Liza Wieland. An American novelist, short story writer, and poet, she has received fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, the Christopher Isherwood Foundation, and the North Carolina Arts Council. She is the 2017 winner of the Robert Penn Warren Award for Fiction from the Fellowship of Southern Writers. Her novel, A Watch of Nightingales, won the 2008 Michigan Literary Fiction Award. And another of her work, Land of Enchantment, was long listed for the 2016 uh, Chetowa Prize. Her latest book, which you can get outside the doors in the back, uh, Paris 7 a.m., was re released just a few weeks ago and has been praised by the BBC, Publishers Weekly, Oprah Magazine, and many others. This sweeping, stunning novel and imagines the experiences of the poet Elizabeth Bishop during three life-changing weeks in Paris in June 1937 under the imminent threat of World War II. Please join me in welcoming Liza Wieland. There's a step here, <clears throat> it's great. Thank you all for coming here to be inside on this gorgeous day. Um, it is truly beautiful. I, my usual introduction says thanks for coming out in the rain, but I don't have to say that, which is nice. Um, and thank you for the to the Boston Athenaeum for hosting and Carol for that lovely introduction. Um, <clears throat> the novel um, is a fictionalized account of a real person. Um, as you, and, and I'm sure Elizabeth Bishop needs no introduction to this particular group. Um, but I thought to pay homage where homage is due, I would start by reading a poem of Bishop's, um, perhaps her most famous one art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last, of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and, vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident. The art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Elizabeth dreams of babies, that they are connected to her body, but not to her skin. They are attached to her clothing by buttons and zippers and snaps, and something like cockleburs that will later be invented and called Velcro. Double-sided tape, staples, not through the flesh. 
and large paper clips. Babies ride in her pockets. Two of them, very still, rest on the top of her hair under her hat. In the dream, she worries not so much that they will hurt her or be hurt, but that they are thirsty. Maybe she should be concerned about their mothers, but she isn't. She wonders if they could all have the same mother. She doesn't even think about their fathers, though she is, in the peculiar atmosphere of dreams, aware that she is thinking about them. She tries to look at their faces, but they squirm and twist away. All the babies are dressed or swaddled in bright colors and electrifying patterns, a yellow star of David over their wildly beating hearts. There will be no hiding these babies, and Elizabeth is vaguely worried about this. But not for their safety, only that she will have to explain her voracious baby love, this immodesty of babies, this glut, this selfishness. Why do you have so many? Someone will surely ask. What she thinks but will not say is, because I can, because no one will have suspected this of me. And so, after she wakes in the morning, after breakfast, Elizabeth says to Clara, yes, yes, I will be your necessary angel. I will help you smuggle these children out of Dieppe on this boat called the Sirene and south to Paris. And she decides she won't say or think anything more about Ernst von Roth and his Polish lover or Sigrid and her marriage of convenience. She won't be afraid of what comes next and she'll try to stop rushing here and there like a sandpiper and settle down somewhere and finish a book of poems. And she decides too that she will never tell Sigrid or Louise or Margaret. She will leave it completely out of her letters to Miss Moore, to Franny Blow, to everyone. If the story of her life is ever written, this episode will not appear. Although she suspects some clever sleuth will uncover it, but not for years after she's dead, a half a century or maybe longer, after everyone else is dead too. Except for these babies, who will have grown up perhaps knowing that two women saved them. Or maybe just one woman, Clara. They will tell their own children, the Countess Clara Longworth de Chambrun single-handedly brought us from the north of France to a convent in Paris thus saving our lives. So the novel proper begins at Vassar um, in 1930 when Bishop was a first year student. Um, and so I'll start with that chapter and then move on from there into the middle of the book. If you can remember a dream and write it down quickly without translating, you've got the poem. You've got the landscapes and populations, alder and aspen and poplar and birch, a lake, a wood, the sea, pheasants and reindeer, a moose, a lark, a gull, rainbow trout, mackerel, a horned owl, the silly somnambulist brook, babbling all night, a grandmother and a child, 
an old man covered with fi glittering fish scales. An all-night bus ride over precipitous hills, a healing sailboat, its mast a slash against the sky, trains tunneling blindly through sycamore and willow, a fire raging in the village, terrible thirst. See, the dreams are poems, and the way to bring on the dreaming is to eat cheese before bed. <laughs> the worst cheese you can think of or get your hands on, Limburger or blue, cheese with a long, irregular history. This was a crazy notion to bring to college, but you have to bring something, don't you? You have to bring a certain kind of habit, or a story, or, because this is Vassar in 1930, a family name. Some girls bring the story of a mysterious past, a deep wound, a lost love, a dead brother. Other girls bring Rockefeller, Kennedy, Roosevelt. They bring smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey and promiscuity. There's a kind of habit, which some girls wear like, write it, a habit. This is a wonderful notion, the nun and the prostitute together at last, as they probably secretly wish they could have been all along. Elizabeth laughs about it, privately, nervously, alone in her head. Her roommate, Margaret Miller, has brought a gorgeous alto and a talent for painting. She's brought New York, which she calls the city, as if there were only that one, ever and always. And cigarettes, a bottle of gin stashed at the back of her wardrobe, a silver flask engraved with her mother's initials. Margaret has brought a new idea of horizon, not a vista, but an angle, not a river, but a tunnel, a park, and not a field. She will paint angles and tunnels and parks until, write it, disaster makes this impossible. And then she will curate exhibitions of paintings and write piercing, gem-like essays about the beauty of mad women in 19th century art. The cheese, meanwhile, occupies a low bookshelf. Most nights, Elizabeth carves a small slice and eats it with bread brought from the dining hall. And sure enough, the dreams arrive, though that seems the wrong word for dreams, but really it isn't. They arrive like passengers out of the air or off the sea, having crossed a vast expanse of some other element. Elizabeth's father, 18 years dead. In her dreams, he's driving a large green car. Her mother at a high window of the state hospital in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, signaling for something Elizabeth can't understand, her expression fierce and threatening. A teacher she loves disappearing into a maze of school corridors. A Dutch bricklayer setting fire to the Reichstag. A two-year-old boy dressed in a brown shirt, a swastika wound round his arm like a bandage. His sister's mouth opened wide to scream something no one will ever hear because she is gassed and then burnt to ashes. All these people trailing poems behind them like overcoats that are too large. And Elizabeth is the seamstress. Make the coat fit better. Close the seams. Move the snaps. Stitch up the ragged hem. Elizabeth, Margaret says toward the end of October, 
I'm not sure that these are poems. They're more like strange little stories, but I am sure that cheese stinks. I know, Elizabeth says, but it has a noble purpose. Which is what, for heaven's sake? If you want to have peculiar dreams, try this. Margaret holds out the silver flask. Just without a glass? Just. Elizabeth takes a long swallow, coughs. Oh, she says when she can speak. It's like drinking perfume. How would you know that? Margaret asks. I quaff the stuff for breakfast, of course. Margaret lies down on her bed, and Elizabeth sits below her on the floor, her back against the bed frame. So, Margaret begins, about men. Were we talking about men? If we weren't, we should be. I wish I knew some men the way you do, Elizabeth says. And what way is that? To feel comfortable around them, natural. Maybe I can help, Margaret says, give you a lesson or two. Start now. Margaret sits up, shifts the pillow behind her back. Elizabeth turns to watch, thinking this will be part of the lesson, how to move one's body, the choreography. Margaret looks like a queen riding on a barge. What poem is that? A pearl garland winds her head. She leaneth on a velvet bed. Margaret as the Lady of Shalott. When Elizabeth turns back, she sees herself and Margaret in the mirror across the room, leg and leg and arm and arm and so on, halves of heads, halves of thoughts too. It seems to do strange things, this drink. It's exhilarating. First, Margaret says, boys, men, they want two things that are contradictory. They want bad and good. They want prostitute and wife. Prostitute and none, Elizabeth says. Margaret smiles, which makes her entire face seem to glow. Such dark beauty, Elizabeth thinks, like my mother. In some photographs, she looks like someone's powdered her face with ashes. That's the spirit, Margaret says. And not only do you have to know how to be both, you have to know when. Must take some mind reading. Which is really just imagination, Margaret says, which you have loads of, obviously. Margaret leans forward to rest, rest the flask on Elizabeth's shoulder. This helps, she says. Helps us or them? Both, Margaret says. She watches Elizabeth unscrew the cap on the flask. Not so much this time. Elizabeth takes a tiny sip, a drop. Suddenly, she feels terribly thirsty. A memory crackles out of nowhere, a fire. Much better, she says, almost tastes good. So it's a math problem, Margaret says. Which do they want and when? Probability, gambling. What if you guess wrong? Then you move on. Moving on, Elizabeth says. That must be the real secret to it. Down the hall, a door opens and music pours out. How have they not heard it before now? The phonograph in Hallie's room. She's trying to learn the Mozart sonata that way, by listening. Miss Pierce tells them it will help to listen, 
But it's no substitute for fingers on the keys, hours alone in the practice room, making the notes crash and break on your own. Margaret is talking about a boy named Jerome, someone she knows from Greenwich, her childhood. Elizabeth gazes up at her, drinks in the calm assurance of Margaret's voice, the confiding tone, the privacy. College can be so awfully public, even places that are supposed to be private, library carols, bathroom stalls. Jerome was in her cousin's class, now at college in The City, Columbia. He's bound to have friends. Elizabeth listens to the sounds of the words, the hard, soft, hard seas, like a mediocre report card. College, city, Columbia, country, the music of it soothes. She turns to look out the window, rubs her cheek against the nubby pattern of the quilt on Margaret's bed, takes some vague and unexpected comfort in the fabric. A light from the dorm room above theirs illuminates the branches of an oak tree outside, two raised arms, a child asking her mother to be picked up, pressed to a shoulder. She hears the child's voice say the words, hold me, I'm thirsty. Margaret is talking about men. The tree is asking to be gathered up, held aloft. An impossible request. The roots run too deep, too wide, scrabbling under this dormitory, beyond, halfway across campus. Elizabeth reaches for the flask, takes a longer swallow, then another. So I want to talk a little bit about my research and um, my method and the progress of this book as it, as it came about. What we haven't gotten to yet, um, and I won't read from, is the middle where Elizabeth gets to France. Um, it's not really the middle, it's pretty soon, so you don't have to wait that long. Um, and meets Claire along with de Chambrun, an American, who is the director at that point of the American Library in Paris. Um, I became interested in Clara uh, after a trip to Paris in 2003 when I fell in love with the library and the idea of the library um, and was sadly drawn home. I was supposed to have a teaching exchange for six months in uh, Saint-Denis, but my house in North Carolina was destroyed by a hurricane, um, and so there was nothing to do but come back and deal with the insurance and give up the teaching job, um, which was terribly, as you can imagine, difficult and sad. Um, and one day, not long after that, I was looking around in my wallet and I found my library card from the American Library and I thought, oh, the lost, the lost months in Paris. And I thought about Clara, who is a sort of enigmatic figure despite the fact that she's very public. She wrote three um, memoirs about her travels with her husband, who was a diplomat, um, French diplomat. And yet, there were some things about Clara that I discovered um, sort of happenstance. Um, I stumbled upon a New York Times obituary for her daughter, Suzanne, who died at age 19. Clara never mentions it, not once, in any of the volumes of the memoir, which I, as the mother of a daughter, found to be quite odd. Um, and I also found that, and this is sort of working between Bishop and and Clara's notes that she rented her apartment um, 
alongside the Jardin de Luxembourg to Elizabeth Bishop and Louise Crane in 1937. And so I thought, oh, there's something. Um, I have had a long relationship with Elizabeth Bishop um, because I lost her. Um, I got to Harvard as an undergraduate in 1978. Bishop had just stopped teaching poetry workshops, and then she died the next year, so there was no, she was there, but I couldn't get to her. Um, I had not then, and never would have, a female writing teacher, which is terrible, <laughs> an awful omission. Um, I sometimes wonder how I got to be where I am without it. Um, I had great teachers, but not a woman and not bishop. Um, and so what I was left with to be close to of hers over the years is, of course, what we're all close to, the poems, um, which always seemed open to me and opening and constantly um, giving of themselves. I feel like I learned something even now, having read her poems for a lot of years. Um, and yet, I feel that they're a little elusive. I, I wonder sometimes how many other people who read her feel that, that they sort of get the poems, but there's something else going on. Um, so the, the work as I began to write the novel about Bishop and Clara, um, who I think needed something from each other, the fictional pair, of course. Clara had lost a daughter, Bishop had lost her mother um, about at, the, at about the same age. Um, the, the, the work became less historical fiction in the publication sense, in the publisher's world sense, um, although that's what it's marketed as. Um, you know, and so whatever marketing works, it's okay with me, but um, that's, that's what the, the, the publishing gods have decided I wrote. Um, but it's really, for me, an imagining of the history of the poems, um, the, the poems themselves, how a poem comes into being, and those of you who are poets know this, from bits and pieces of experience and consciousness and unconsciousness and memory. Um, so it, the book became a curious sort of research, um, not the biography, which, as I said, is pretty well known, and not a biographical reading of the poems, but a distillation of these two kinds of research um, as an act of imagination. Um, really, it was a magic trick um, to, to make this book about the poems and not so much about the biography of the poet. And I hope I pulled off the trick. Um, so I want to go to the end of the book, um, after Elizabeth and Clara have done their brilliant, dangerous, imagined rescue. Um, and along the way in the book, um, Elizabeth Bishop, is my Elizabeth, um, is trying to figure out, as I think you know, poets are in their 20s, what kind of poems to write, how to write a poem, what apt subject matter is, what should be left in and left out. And so the novel's about that too, about her discovery of herself as a poet. Um, and at the end, um, she's been asked to, in my novel, to read a poem at the salon, the Paris salon of American expatriate feminist Natalie Barney. 
Um, and she decides to read Paris 7 a.m. And one of the things that the letter writing Elizabeth Bishop remarked on about Clara's apartment were the clocks. And apparently Clara had a massive collection of clocks, none of which told the same time, um, which you can imagine as cacophonous and perhaps irritating. Um, so she wrote the poem Paris 7 a.m. Um, beginning in Bishop's apartment. And I want to read that poem and then go on to this final chapter. Paris, 7 a.m. I make a trip to each clock in the apartment. Some hands point histrionically one way and some point others from the ignorant faces. Time is an étoile. The hours diverge so much that days are journeys round the suburbs, circles, circles surrounding stars, overlapping circles. The short half-tone scale of winter weathers is a spread pigeon's wing. Winter lives under a pigeon's wing, a dead wing with damp feathers. Look down into the courtyard. All the houses are built that way with ornamental urns set on the mansard rooftops where the pigeons take their walks. It is like introspection to stare inside or retrospection, a star inside a rectangle, a recollection. This hollow square could easily have been there. The childish snow forts built in flashier winters could have reached these proportions and been houses. The mighty snow forts four, five stories high, with standing spring as sand forts do the tide. Their walls, their shape, could not dissolve and die, only be overlapping in a strong chain, turned to stone and grayed and yellowed, now like these. Where is the ammunition, the piled-up balls with the star-splintered hearts of ice, this sky is no carrier warrior pigeon escaping endless intersecting circles. It is a dead one, or the sky from which a dead one fell. The urns have caught his ashes or his feathers. When did the star dissolve, or was it captured by the sequence of squares and squares and circles, circles? Can the clock say, is it there below, about to tumble into snow? There you are, Miss Barney says. She takes both of Elizabeth's hands and leads her toward the piano. It is a kind of odd two-step, but Miss Barney is very graceful so that their procession all the way across the room is not the least bit awkward. At the last minute, Elizabeth wonders if Miss Barney has made a terrible mistake. She believes Elizabeth is a singer, and that is why a musician introduced as Monsieur Poulenc is settling himself at the piano. But no, she is calling Elizabeth a poet, a protege of Miss Marion Moore, but a new and distinctive voice in her own right. Evidently, Miss Barney has looked into things. The older poet, she says, tells us this younger one has a methodically oblique, intent way of working. She is not like the vegetable shredder that cuts into the life of a thing. Miss Barney says this in both English and French. 
Elizabeth is interested and somewhat horrified to realize that the French word for shredder is rappeur. She has decided to read Paris 7 a.m. as Louise suggested. As soon as she begins, however, the words sound dull and flat. A series of sheep bleats is how the French will hear it, or anyone who doesn't know English, and maybe some who do. The rhymes occur in the oddest places. Some people will surely go mad waiting for rhyming words when there is no real pattern. Weathers and feathers, high, die, below, and snow. What does it all mean anyway? She hopes no one will ask because she will not be able to answer the question. Extraordinary that she can say the words of the poem and listen to herself at the same time. She scans the sea of faces for Clara's. Then it's over. The word snow, followed by silence. The audience politely waits for more. Elizabeth thinks she might drown in the horrible, awkward moment of judgment that follows. Miss Barney begins the applause. It's astonishing what a racket her two tiny hands can make. Louise joins in, nods her head decisively, mouthing the word triumph. Elizabeth rolls her eyes. One poem does not a triumph make. Miss Barney is 60 years old, almost exactly her mother's age, Clara's age. So the attraction Elizabeth feels is very strange. Clara is a few years older, but seems more like a governess or a nursemaid. Miss Barney, though, Elizabeth would like to stay in the beam of her attention forever, though she suspects no one does for very long. She would like to sit very close to Miss Barney on one of the velvet sofas, Miss Barney's arm around her shoulder, Miss Barney whispering in her ear that Elizabeth is a good girl, smart and pretty and soon to make something extraordinary of herself. She would like to lie in bed with Miss Barney and talk about the day's events and plan for the next day. Then Miss Barney would put her arms around Elizabeth and hold her for a full minute, kiss her on her cheek or her forehead or both, get up, turn out the light, step out of the room, close the door, whisper something necessary from the other side. Necessary. Now where did that word come from? Necessary angel. But Miss Barney bestows her attention, her concentrated gaze on everyone. This is why the Friday salons are such a success. It's interesting, Louise says, what she chooses not to see. What, Elizabeth says. Louise points discreetly to the staircase, two women ascending, arms and hips touching, not accidentally. That looks like fun, Louise says. Elizabeth feels the electricity of her reading drain away and gravity, that mundane force, take its place. She knows what's happening in her expression and that Louise is watching the change, the fade. Don't worry, Elizabeth, I won't leave you. Elizabeth moves closer to Louise. And there's always Sigrid. I don't know about always. I don't think she's leaving Paris anytime soon. No, I don't suppose she is. Do you want another whiskey, Elizabeth? I do, but let's go before I can get it. I want to use my typewriter and not be the monkey typing Shakespeare. They search for Miss Barney to say goodbye, but she does not appear to be in the house. Try the temple, 
the housekeeper tells them. They wind through the crowd outside to the Temple de l'Amitié. Miss Barney is indeed inside, with a dozen other guests, listening to a young singer. The singer is nervous to the point of trembling, a full-body vibrato, but her voice lacks color and depth. Next to Miss Barney is a woman whose frozen smile suggests she must be the girl's mother. Elizabeth and Louise stop in the doorway to listen. Poulenc accompanies her on the piano. A woman besides, beside them whispers that it's his newest composition, incidental music for a play by Paul Éluard. Everyone in the room wears the same look of confusion, including Poulenc. Only Miss Barney is rapt. The sight of her rapture causes Elizabeth to wonder about her poem and the depth of Miss Barney's appreciation. She tries to drive the thought away. Can you follow the words? She asks Louise. He's a surrealist, Louise says. Don't worry. When the young singer is finished, she begins to weep. She drops onto the piano bench and buries her face in Poulenc's sleeve, clutching the folds of his coat in her hands. This almost seems like a part of the performance. Poulenc stares straight ahead, his expression now devoid of any emotion. He is absent. He is someone, Elizabeth can tell, who has mastered the art of listening, and so also must have a deep understanding of silence, things unsaid and unheard. Elizabeth watches Poulenc and learns something. He has found a way to be anonymous, invisible. Even while he was playing, his music absorbs or intuits Éluard's poems, but doesn't feel them. It's like living close to a graveyard in which no one you know is buried. The grief is far, far away, like pain a half hour after the analgesic. All this seems to Elizabeth like the kind of poem she wants to write. Fear and panic finally calmed, lying quietly underneath the words. Poems like Poulenc's silence, his stare. He will not comment on the singer and her mortification. No, his silence is the comment. Elizabeth remembers a boat going to save somebody, to save children. The boat carried out this very great task, but the boat doesn't feel anything at all. The sirène, in fact, bobs once again at Léonie's dock without comment. A pool of bilge on the floor of the cabin, an oil rainbow spreading below the lee cloth that held the babies. There is a sort of boat called Tender. Elizabeth remembers the stars that guided them back from Dieppe. The Dipper, itself a kind of boat, swings overhead. You want to climb up into it, be safe above the fray, be tended. Such pleasure. A real boat could never be that. The healing, the bilge, the torn sail, the broken mast. It may be that stars are the only pleasure boats we have. Thank you.